Well, we get a former Kitchener Ranger on the show this week, but I think best known certainly for his time in the National Hockey League with the Buffalo Sabres, none other than Vesna Trophy winner Don Edwards joining the OHL podcast. It's a real pleasure. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I'm always curious how guys end up deciding that what they want to do in the game of hockey is stand in front of pucks. Like why, (laughs) Don, why would you even go down this path? Well, it was something I, at an early age in life, I wanted to be a goalie. My, my uh, idol, Glenn Hall um, still is. And uh, you know, my uncle was a goalie in the national hockey league as well. You know, had a long career in the minors and then, in uh, the 67 draft, he got a chance to uh, move on and play in the National Hockey League with Pittsburgh and Detroit. So I, I think it was in my lineage, lineage I guess, to uh, move in that direction. Um, I had a dream, and I followed that dream. Like You mentioned Glenn Hall, and word was that he would uh, – he had a little ritual, let's call it, before every game where he would get sick to his stomach. What about you? Any rituals like that or anything else? No, I, I didn't have any rituals like that, thank God. But I always, you know, there were certain things I did. You know, the, the um, left skate went on before the right skate, things like that, the way I did my pads up. Um, just small little things that, you know, I taped my stick the same way uh, for all my professional and junior career. It was just little things that, you know, you, you sort of go through these things. You really don't think they're, you know – something that really uh, affect your game, but you you were trying to stay on the right side to make sure your mind was clear. Did you ever talk to your goalposts? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were my best friends. And, uh, you know, now that I'm retired, I don't think about them at all anymore. I don't talk to them anymore either. <laughs> How could you, it was such a long lasting relationship, Don. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I have a grandson that, now they're starting to play and, you know, he wants to be a goalie now. So uh, I'm getting my thrill late in life, I guess, to watch somebody else. Are you jealous in any way at the equipment that your grandson's getting to use compared to what you were using 40, 50 years ago? Well, it's sort of funny. You mentioned my grandson. He's, you know, he's, he's just five. And, and, you know, I've told his mother and father that, you know, like myself, my father was very instrumental in, in, you know, my direction, but, you know, I had to be the best skater on the team before I became a goaltender. And that wasn't until the age of 14. Uh, it's, in, it's extremely important, you know, kids skate well, you know, back then when I was playing, you're carrying 35 pounds of equipment. Uh, today, these kids are carrying about 20 pounds at most. It's all very light stuff. It's all ballistic, um, you know, and, equipment we use. I mean, we got, you know, we're wearing face masks that were paper thin and strapped uh, flat on our face. So it was a different uh, air. And quite simply, uh, today in today's game, I couldn't play. I'm too small. I'm only five, nine and a half. And uh, today's goalies are all six, three, six, four. And they're big guys. And uh, my fortune is taking the little man out of the net. You know, I wondered about that because the knock against you even back then was small-ish and I wonder if that's something you had to battle through as much as battling against you know people shooting pucks at you well you know I was maybe small but I was very lucky you know I when I was playing my junior career in in Kitchener you know there were certain habits that you know I was able to get rid of um, you know as I went to my first year pro I had a great coach in in Hershey his name was uh, Chuck Hamilton 
And he really took me under his wing. And, you know, just up the road at that time, Bernie Prom was in his heyday with the Flyers. And Bernie was the first real stand-up goaltender outside of Plant. And so I had the opportunity to watch him on a regular basis. And Chuck just kept saying to me, get on your feet, get on your feet. And it was all angles and, and uh, body presence. And so that's the way in which I learned to play. And, uh, you know, it was funny. Some of the guys that I played against, you know, would often come up to me after I was retired. And they said, you were, you know, a real stand-up goalie. And I found that I, took, I take that as a real compliment because it was probably the difference of me playing in the National Hockey League and me not. Um, if I would have been a V-Butterfly goaltender, I didn't have the size to take away the upper part of the net, although I had great quickness. Um, I needed to rely on my size, and that was staying on my feet. As a Southern Ontario boy, what was it like when you learned that you'd be playing for the Kitchener Rangers? Oh, I was thrilled. I mean, we'd won the Junior C Championship in Caledonia, um, you know, that was a great thrill. And then being drafted into the fourth round by Kitchener and going there, I knew, um, it, you know, Eddie Bush had a great reputation as being a tough disciplinarian and a, and a good hockey mind. And, and when him and Mike Penny came to visit me in my home in Woodburn and, uh, you know, I knew I was drafted, but when they came in, I, I was ready. I mean, I, I was all set to go. And so my first day in training camp, you know, they had already said, go get a new set of pads, go get skates at the Bauer plant, um, you know, I, I was ready to go. And so I loved Kitchener. Kitchener Waterloo was one of my favorite places. I've still got many great friends there. And, uh, you know, I had a great junior career. You know, you mentioned those names, Eddie Bush and Mike Penny. Those are uh, legendary names in Kitchener Rangers history. By not only you talk about Eddie and his disciplined approach, but Mike too, and finding players and, and building some really good hockey clubs. Well, they had some great teams, right? You know, I was very lucky to play with some very good players in Kitchener. I think, you know, looking back, you know, to play there for two years and be the first team OHL All-Star and first team OHL All-Star and, you know, just all the things that happened to me as I moved on into my professional career, you know, to the Buffalo Sabres being the AHL MVP in my second year, although I only played until mid-February, you know, and going through to the the um, Calder Cup uh, finals that first year against the uh, – the Nova Scotia Voyagers, and then moving on to Buffalo. And, you know, I won a lot of, you know, awards in Buffalo. I mean, I, I, I give, I have to give credit to a lot of people on the way that sort of touched me and gave me great advice. Who stands out? Well, I, you know, I, I, I stand out, look, Chuck Hamilton, Eddie along the way. I mean, you know, uh, Eddie Chadwick was another one that gave me some good advice. Punch Imlac was a, you know, he was a real source of information for me. I mean, He'd come up to me quite often and say, "Hey, kid, you know you're, you're, uh, you know you need to challenge a little bit more and get on your feet a little bit more again." And he could sense that I was tired at times, and so Punch would come and talk to me, and uh, you know it was it was really an interesting time. Um, just you know my my years in Buffalo were cherished, um, and played with some great teammates there, and then moving on to Calgary where I met Glenn, and uh, then in, into Toronto. It's a really incredible career. And I'm, I'm thinking back on the time you were in Kitchener, Don, and the organization, really the franchise was still very much in its infancy, now 60 plus years strong. And Friday nights are hockey nights in Kitchener, as I know they were back then, but we're talking six, 7,000 fans per game now. What was it like? How much had the city embraced the team back then? 
Well, the building, uh, Mike, was pretty much full back when I played as well. It was, you know, there wasn't too many games that the building wasn't filled. I mean, Kitchener-Waterloo really support the Rangers. It's a, it's an organization that has a tremendous legacy there. There's been some great players go through that organization. And, um, you know, I think it comes back to the billets. You know, they, they embrace the players. You become part of their family. They really make you part of the community. And I think that's what makes uh, Kitchen Waterloo so special is that they, they just, the, the people just come out and they understand what that organization means to them. And, uh, you know, it's a dynasty there as far as, you know, it's not going anywhere. And it seems like they've done many expansions to the auditorium, but they continue to fill it. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we still refer to it as a, a cathedral, really, because it's got that hockey arena feel to it, as opposed, the new ones are nice, and they've got those creature comforts, but the odd, while having expanded a couple to a few times since you were here, is still very much that uh, classic hockey arena. Well, you, you know, we we were we played all of our games out of there. The only times we weren't there is when Oktoberfest was going out, was was going on, which I imagine is still going on right now in Kitchener, which just ended. Um but it's a really a, um, a special place. I mean, you know, uh, it, 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 you know, the fans got into it. I mean, the people that used to come to the games that, you know, that watched my career. And then as I moved on in life, they became good friends. I mean, it's, um, it's really something special to look back on and say to yourself, I was very blessed to play there, you know, and as every kid that has had the opportunity or every player that's had the opportunity you know, to play in Kitchener, I think they would all, um, you know, say the same words, is that how kind the community was to them. You got to play while you were here with a fellow by the name of Dwight Foster, who still holds the record for most career points as a Kitchener Ranger. And I don't think that's going to be uh, a, a record that's broken for what it's worth. But when you were playing with him, I mean, did he make it look easy? What was he like? Well, Dwight was dra drafted very young, too. I mean, he was... Uh, you know, he was a young player being drafted. I think White was 16 when he got drafted, 15, 16. He made the team immediately and, uh, you know, stuck around there a long time. And uh, when he first got there, I mean, in that in that second year, I guess, um, you know, our team was pretty much drained of potential. I think we had five first-rounders that my first year that uh, were first-round picks to the NHL, and then we had four second-rounders. So it was, a, it was blessed with a, a very talented team, unfortunately. We had a couple of key players go down in the playoffs. One was Dougie Riseborough, who uh, hurt his knee, and and then Peter Sturgeon went down. And we lost a couple of key guys to us in there, and so we didn't go quite as far into the playoffs as we really maybe wanted. But Dwight came in that that next year, and the team was com was a complete rebuild, and uh, you know it was a different uh, story around what Dwight's career. And he had a great career in Kitchener. You know, I didn't follow it all that closely, to be honest with you because I had moved on uh, into the NHL, the American League, and then the NHL. But a few years later, you know, White appeared in the NHL as well. You know, you talk about the talent that you had on those teams with you in Kitchener and then moving on that, that Calder Cup appearance with Hershey and then into the National Hockey League when you start with the Buffalo Sabres, arguably in their, in their first heyday, the French connection is there. I mean, Don Edwards was a part, and not to take away from your talent by any means, but boy, oh boy, did you have some talented teams to play with. We did, you know, and the weird thing about it at the time, you know, Buffalo was one of the top three teams in the league. You know, it was Montreal, uh, Buffalo, and Philadelphia, and then you could throw, maybe throw the Bruins in there too. I mean, we were the dynasty teams of that time. I mean, at some point, we all had to go against each other in the playoffs. But I still remember 
the bench clearing brawls with the Montreal Canadiens and the Philadelphia Flyers and the Boston Bruins. I mean, we went at it and we knew we were in for a tough game, but uh, it was a good time for me to play in the league. I always uh, marveled at going against Ken Dryden and Bernie Front, and Jerry Cheevers. Um, you know, they were sort of the main stable guys in the league at that point. And to be considered in that elite group at the time, I was uh, really honored. As a goaltender, what do you do when the brawl's happening? Do you find Ken Dryden or Bernie Perrant or Jerry Cheevers and kind of square off? What what happens? Well, it was funny, Mike. I probably started as many as, as someone else. I mean, I, I can I can recall starting at least five or six. That you know that you know we had some pretty tough guys in Buffalo at the time, and 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 Lee Foglin and Rick Dudley and Jimmy Schoenfeld and Jerry Korab and you know there was quite a few others as well, but. Now, we weren't afraid to drop the gloves and go at them. And, you know, back then it was sort of funny that certain guys always matched off against each other. It was, you know, there was there was great respect between the two teams. And the heavyweights would get at it and the other guys, the lightweights, would sort of shoulder up to each other. But, uh, you know, I don't remember going toe-to-toe um, -to -toe with any goaltenders. As close as I came was in the playoffs when I was with Calgary when we went against Winnipeg one year. All right, so you're playing goal for the Buffalo Sabres and the flower is coming down the wing and that hair is flowing as he's skating along. What goes through your mind as a goaltender? Well, it was funny. I, you know, I, I, I played it with Guy in the, in the, in the uh, 81 Canada Cup and I, I did pro tips with him in, in, in Quebec too, the Howie Meeker pro tips. And so I got to know him a little bit. But, you know, when I first got in, I was a, a rookie and, and I was a deer in headlights for, uh, when you played the Canadians because they had the big teams. Surprisingly, I was very, very fortunate in my first game in the Montreal Forum. I shot them out 6 nothing, And, you know, that was something that I'll never forget. Um, you know, before the game, Danny Garrett came up to me, and I was sitting on the, the player's bench taping a stick. And he came out to me, sat down for, with me for about 10 minutes. He said, kid, you got to breathe. And he said, he kept saying, dark, dark, you got to breathe. And he goes, let it out real slow. And I did that for about three minutes, you know, and it, it was just trying to get me calmed down. Well, we went out that night, team played great and we beat them six, nothing. And, uh, you know, I look back on moments like that, you know, that really are, are highlights in my career that, you you know, you'd like to um, remember and, you know, there'll, there'll be something for the history books. One thing I noticed about you, Don, when we look back on your statistics, and this goes back to junior when I saw you in, appearing in 65 games with the Kitchener Rangers, the year that you won the Vesna, I believe it was 72 games yeah, that you yeah. appeared in for the Buffalo Sabres. Clearly, you must have relished the workload, or was it just, yeah. look, dart, you're up, and you kept going? I, I believe the year we won the Vesna, I played 92 games that year in total between uh, regular season and and uh, 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 exhibition and playoffs. I mean, it was a healthy workload. And I remember playing a lot of games in Kitchener. I mean, first year I went there, Bob Blanchett was the, the, the goaltender that was supposed to, you know, get all the praise, you know. Uh, and uh, very quickly, Eddie had me in the pipes, and all of a sudden Bob was out the door, and I was playing all the games. So they had a lot of trust in me. I uh, loved to play the games. I mean, I just loved to play. And uh, every opportunity that came, I was in there. So there wasn't too many nights that I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to sit on the bench. Okay. So I'm, I'm just thinking on that conversation with Danny Gary saying, breathe, kid. And and yeah. I mean, the, the pressure, there's so much pressure on a goaltender, Don. I don't have to tell you that. What's what's the secret? We always talk in, in the broadcast booth about, you know, having a short memory. Don Cameron always said, 
I'll never say on the air, he probably wants that one back because a goaltender wants all of them back. How did yeah. you mentally deal with the pressure of the position? Mind over matter, uh, really, Mike, it was really a situation that, you know, I started later, you know, in my career, as I moved into the pros, I started playing the games in five minute segments. So um, instead of playing 20 minute segments or 60 minute segments, I started breaking the game into five minute segments. And what occurred is that, you know, if I didn't allow a goal in the first five minutes, you know, in that five minutes, I won that segment. And that was like a little boost to me. And then all of a sudden, okay, let's get win that next, next segment. And so I think it was a, you know, a really good leveling board, if anything else, to keep me focused. I mean, it's easy when you give up a goal to say, geez, they're going to get another one right away. But I took the other attitude and I said, it's just, a, you know, that, that game is over and I've got to start a new five minute segment. So they scored a 12 minutes in the game. You know, that segment was over and I would start a new five minute segment. It really helped me, I think. And I forget who who, who I talked to about that, but somebody sort of recommended about breaking it down. It might have been Chuck Hamilton. It might have been, you know, uh, one of the coaches I had maybe in Buffalo or something. But it really helped me to just um, uh, focus and, and for that immediate moment. You know, uh, goaltending is a funny game. The play goes into the other end. There's a lot of play in the neutral zone. It's really once play gets inside the blue line that the focus of a goaltender has to be sharp. When we talked about that Vesna trophy in the 79-80 season, you said we, of course, you and your goaltending partner in Buffalo, Bob Sove, mm -hmm. uh, shared that trophy. What was the relationship between you and Bob like? Bobby and I got along really well. I mean, you know, it was it was an unusual relation in some way because Bob was a first round pick. I was a fifth fifth round pick, as you know. Bob had it in his contract to stay in Buffalo um, when he first was drafted. Well, he was in Buffalo for three months. He wasn't playing. He was the third guy there, or third or fourth guy, because back then they had uh, they, they had uh, Jerry DeJard and they had Gary Bromley um, and, uh, and, and Al Smith was there as well. So Bobby became the third and fourth guy. I was the guy that was supposed to go to Hershey, be a, uh, fill the void there until Bobby came and then uh, be sent on to Charlotte, which at that time was in the old East, uh, the East Coast Hockey League. Well, I, I got to Hershey. I played so well that, you know, it came time to send Bob to the minors in December. And uh, Frank Mathers, uh, the general manager, and Chuck Hamilton said, send Solvay to Charlotte. And so I got the chance to stay in Hershey. And, you know, I, I, I relished that opportunity. And, you know, I, and uh, that year we went on to the Calder Cup finals against Nova Scotia. And we lost in seven games. So, um, and I think half that team out of Nova Scotia went on to play in the National Hockey League the next year because it was a split Montreal-Atlanta uh, franchise. You talk about being drafted in the fifth round to the Buffalo Sabres, but that same year, the WHA's San Diego Mariners also drafted you. What happened yeah. there? And did you not like warm weather? Like, what the hell did you choose Buffalo for? <laughs> <laughs> well, I live in warm weather now, as you know. I'm here in Florida, Southwest Florida. I absolutely love it. But uh, yes, I was drafted. You know, there, it really wasn't a consideration because uh, back then I knew if I was going to play in the World Hockey League, I was going to become the backup goaltender and I wasn't going to play. So they're going to offer me $12,000, $15,000 to be the backup goaltender and, and then with no experience. So my career, I really knew that my career at that point was probably at a dead end. So, you know, um, keeping with the decision to stay in junior and then, you know, be drafted to the NHL, I was lucky enough. And, uh, you know, from there, uh, you know, all the pieces fell in place. And uh, thank God, because I didn't know what I, I, I don't know what else I would have done. 
you're a puck stopper, you're a puck stopper at that time, yeah, right? <laughs> for sure. You know, but anyways, it was a great career. Those Buffalo teams, Don, I, I remember them so fondly, even though I admit to being a Leafs fan, and we'll get to your stop in Toronto a little bit later. But that doesn't make that doesn't make you a bad person, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. That, uh, uh, sometimes I feel like it. I'm told I am, but that's good to know. But yeah. we got the uh, we got the Buffalo Sabres game of the week on Saturdays on WGR here in Southern Ontario. I loved listening to Ted Darling. I was watching the games with you and Perro and all these other guys we've already talked about all the talent. They, they were some really good teams. What was it that, that kept you from just getting over the top? Well, I think there was, there was a certain amount of magic. I think if, if anything, I think we probably may, missed a little bit of what I would call coaching discipline. Um, you know, at the time, you know, Mon Montreal was dominating and, and Scotty was behind the bench and Scotty had a tremendous mind. I mean, I've got to, you know, I, I played for Scotty for a few years and he finally came to Buffalo. But Scotty had a tremendous, he, he had a tremendous mind for the game. He was two and three moves ahead of everybody. And, um, you know, I think that was one of the things we missed. The other thing that was disappointing is when Scotty first came, I think he took the position that he wanted to build his own team. And I think if he would have left, you know, 90 to 95% of that team together, uh, we would we we may have won a cup. But uh, he was quick, uh, you know, the, the first thing he did is Randy Robert went out the door. So that broke up the French connection. Then Schoenfeld went out, then Corab and Luce went out, and the list goes on and on. And all of a sudden, the core of the team had been broken. And so, you know, the, the remaining parts of that was, was Craig Ramsey, myself, or maybe Billy Height um, of, of the start, because, you know, we had Robert gone. Oh, excuse me, Robert was still there as well. We still had this, you know, the star. But we, you know, Martin was gone, Robert was gone, Korab's gone, Schoenfeld's gone, uh, Luce was gone, and the list went on and on. So it was a it was a new team with uh, you know a whole do different uh, bodies uh, that were in the dressing room, and it was finding that you know that 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 chemistry to, to to be a champion, and we just couldn't find it. Did it come as any sort of relief then? Were you ready to make the move when the trade to Calgary came along? I wasn't. I didn't want to be tried traded. I love Buffalo. I still do. I mean, um, you know, it was interesting in the fact that I was negotiating my, my, I guess it'd be my third deal. Um, and we were very close in settling. And I was, I had fired Eagleson as my agent after my first contract. And uh, um, I went on my own and I was, you know, virtually I had a, an accountant in Buffalo assisting me with that contract. And we were sitting in the, the meeting and what happened was Scotty leaked that he was going to sign me and then trade me. And I looked and turned to Bob Engel and I said, Bob, I said, if he's trading me, I'm not signing here because I'm going to be able to go somewhere else and probably get more money. So sure enough, we left the meeting. And, and then two weeks later, just at the draft, I was traded to Calgary. It was between Washington and Calgary. And I ended up getting, a, 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 you know, traded there. Um, about a week later, I met with Cliff Fletcher and the, the, the negotiation took 20 minutes. <laughs> he I mean, was, it, yeah. And it was for a lot more money than what I was, was going to get out of Buffalo. But I, Trust me, I was sad to leave Buffalo. I, I, you know, our three, we raised three of our kids. They were all born in Buffalo. Uh, they're all American citizens. I mean, uh, I still have a lot of friends there. I still go back there and visit friends and play a few golf tournaments and go back and do the odd alumni function and things like that to promote the Sabres. But, you know, I love Buffalo. Yeah, well, talk about a sports town, too. I mean, th that city gets behind its sports teams. Yeah, I think they went through, you know, the last 10, 15 years, the Sabres have really struggled. They 
They just haven't been able to find their way. I think they're slowly getting back there, but they still got a year or two to, um, to uh, you know, sort of get to that, uh, you know, elite group of what I would call um, four to six teams in the league. Um, they're trying, but, it, you know, there's such a um, there's such a level playing field in the league now with the salary cap is that, you know, nobody dominates anymore. It's sort of like you build a team for one one year and then you got to retool it and, and build it again. So, um, you know, it's it's a hard thing. And I think Kevin Adams is trying to do his best. But again, you, you know, it's a matter of uh, signing and drafting good players and then keeping yourself under the sal salary cap in a small market. Did your heart break just a little bit for them in the 99 cup with the foot, the famous foot increase finish? I did, you know, uh, it, it, you know, as much as I would like to have seen the Sabres win and that, you know, Hasek was the star. I mean, Dominic, I mean, he, he made that team and he made them better. And, uh, you know, to see them lose, I mean, it set them back, but you know, that's what, that's what the game is all about. It's the toughest cup to win. You know, you, you got to battle it out for 28 games if every series goes uh, seven games. And it's a, it's a tough haul. You're not just mentioning Hashik because you're a fellow goaltender. What you said is absolutely true. And I think everybody that's watched any hockey knows it. He carried that team and was the biggest reason why they got as far as they did. But I wanted to ask, as a former stand-up goaltender and what you did, what do you think of Mr. Unorthodox there and Dominic Hashik? retired and, and sort of he began to step away from the game a little bit you know we had we've had the odd talk opportunity to chat and uh, you know he was uh ambidextrous in a lot of ways i mean his arms were flying every which direction but he had great instincts for the puck uh, i wouldn't say he had the greatest style of all time you know with the best fundamentals but you know he just had a way of stopping the puck and making it you know a, a job look easy that was difficult um, you know, he was, uh, he made saves sometimes that, you know, you say, how did he ever do that? But his, his, his reflexes were so good and he had a real vision on where the puck was. When we talked earlier about Lafleur, you mentioned that 81 Canada cup team that you were a part of, uh, backing up Mike Liute, but it's got to feel special. What did it mean to you to put on the play for team Canada? Well, the walk in the dressing room with Team Canada, you know, it was uh, an unbelievable feeling. You know, 40 guys invited to camp. We had a lot of young guys there that they were trying to give exposure to, you know, Paul Reinhardt at the time and Paul Coffey and some of those guys that were just starting to come into the league. Um, it was funny, just down here the other day, Craig Hartsburg wa walked into the uh, place I uh, helped with some golf product. And, you know, I hadn't seen Hartsy in a couple of years and he came in and, you know, we were teammates in, in the 81 Canada Cup. Um, he was there as well. Um, but they're, you know, playing with guys like LaFleur and Larry Robinson, and you know, you, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, it was a dynamic group of, of people, of players, I should say. And to be a part of that, you know, I was blessed. And I was particularly uh, taken and, 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 and uh, I felt very proud that I was able to play the semifinal game. I was not supposed to. Um, you know, it was Billy Smith and, and Mike were probably going to play the games. In fact, when it came uh, time for the final pair downs, Eagleson came to me and uh, in, in Edmonton um, and said that, um, 
you know, only two goaltenders could practice with the team. Well, it was very interesting. It was a lie, you know, at that time, because I had talked to both Billy and Mike, and I told them that, you know, that they were expected to play and to take as much practice as they want. I just to be a a bystander at the sides. But Eagleson sort of took it that, you know, um, he wanted, you know, whether Billy or Mike had talked to him, whatever else may be, he sort of didn't want me to be on the ice. He told me I could practice with the trainer after practice after the main, after the team had practiced. And I said, I looked at myself, I said, why would I stick around here and practice with a trainer when I can go home to Buffalo and practice with the guys and get ready for training camp? Well, I just, I flew, um, we, uh, Steve Shutt was the last cut along with me. I was not cut, I left, Steve, Steve was cut. But Steve and I flew the red eye back from Edmonton to Toronto and I just gotten home and and uh, that, the, on, on the, the day and the next morning, I should say on the red eye, and then I uh, was called by my brother-in-law to say, go play golf. Well, I went and played golf in a little tournament at Glendale Golf Club in Hamilton and uh, got home late. Phone rang at, at uh, 7 o'clock the next morning, and it was uh, uh, Scotty Bowman uh, asking me to come back and meet the team that night net in Winnipeg because uh, uh, Billy had broken his finger. So, anyways, I um, Aggie Kukowitz, who was the work with Air Canada at the time, um, you know, coordinated a flight for me because he said, can you get a, can you get on a, an 11 o'clock flight from Toronto to Winnipeg? And I said, no, I can't get there in time. So it was odd. You know, I ended up having to fly from Buffalo, Chicago, from Chicago to Winnipeg. And I, when I landed in Winnipeg, um, they just came on the air. Everybody sit down. They come in and grab me off the plane. They opened up the luggage compartment, grabbed my ho- hockey bag, wished me over to the Winnipeg arena and I walked in at virtually about 10 after 7, and uh, I was dressed in on the bench for the start of the game. Come on. Yeah. That's yeah. an incredible story. How could you even – I mean, I guess you don't have time to really get nervous or mentally prepare anything. Well, I, I, I didn't get prepared because it came so quick. But, you know, all of a sudden, I, I walked in the dress room in Winnipeg, and I can't tell you there wasn't one player that was there, in, you, know, you know, Potman, uh, Robinson, you name it. The floor. They all came up to me and embraced me and said, "Welcome back." And I was really touched by that, you know. And it was interesting. We we flew that night after the game in Winnipeg. Uh, we flew that night from there to uh, Mirabel Airport, in Montreal. And I still remember getting my luggage. You know, they, they, my equipment had been taken by the trainers, but I had my luggage, you know, that, that with me. And uh, I'm walking through the the uh, airport, and who comes up beside me is Scotty Bowman. And Scotty came up to me. And he said, welcome back. Well, oddly enough, you know, uh, just before the semifinal game, I wasn't expecting to play. I went to the game not knowing I'd been, you know, uh, be playing. And just before warm-up, Scotty came in and said, you're playing. And so, you know, I had tears in my eyes to think that I was representing Canada. And I knew how proud my mom and dad would be of me and all of my family. Goodness. Uh, Did you play it in those same five-minute segments? I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And we beat the Soviets 7-3 in that game, you know, and I felt I felt bad for Mike in the final game because, you know, we got we got beat pretty bad. But I really felt bad for Mike in the fact I, I thought there at the time at the end of the second period, I believe the score was 5-1. And I thought, you know, knowing Scotty that he might put me in to try and uh, change the wave. But I think he was also being respectful to Mike, knowing that, you know, Mike had had such a great year the year before. 
you know, and I, I recognize that comparing eras is unfair and, and it's going to be always a, a subjective conversation. But I'm just thinking of all these names you're, you're rattling off here, Don, yourself among them. I mean, were you not part of the best era in the National Hockey League? No disrespect to the, the Crosbys and the McDavid's today, but goodness gracious. Well, you know, what? it was funny. You know, I look back 14 teams, you know, sort of when I broke in, I believe that's what it was. But I look at the team in Philadelphia and the big line there, Barber, Leach and Clark. And then, you know, you you go over to the, you know, the Islanders and there's uh, Gillies and Trotsche and Bossy. And then you go to Montreal and you've got um, uh, Lemaire and Cornwallier and Lafleur. you know, and it goes on and on. And then in Buffalo, we had the French connection. You went to Toronto and you had Daryl and, and Lanny and Tiger. I mean, every, the, you know, out in Los Angeles, you had the triple crown line of, of Dion, Taylor and Simmer. I mean, every team seemed to all have a big line. Every team's seemed to have that big defenseman. Some had more than others. And then, you know, around the league, there, you know, there was goaltenders like Dryden and Front, Rogie and Cheevers and, and Palmetier. And, you know, um, it was, it was just a fun time to play. And, I mean, uh, you know, I think you make a good comment, Mike, that maybe it was maybe some of the best uh, pro hockey players ever, the gen best generation. Well, maybe it was. I don't know. I'll let the others decide that. But I know I played against a lot of great players and with a lot of great players. And, and one of those players I think you got to play with after the trade to Calgary was Lanny McDonald, wasn't it? Yeah, was he did. there by then? Yeah. Yeah. Lanny and I became very good friends in, in Calgary. You know, he'd been traded from Colorado up there. Lanny was going home, you know, a medicine hat boy. And, you know, he was, uh, he was the star there and, and certainly uh, well-recognized. You mentioned earlier, Don, that one brawl that came in a playoff versus Winnipeg. I would have thought immediately Edmonton, of course, because the old battle of Alberta, what was it like yeah. being a part of that in its heyday? Well, that I'll tell you what, it was war. It was a uh, true war. I mean, I've, I've never been in a situation where two teams hated each other so badly. And, you know, it was a little bit, you know, the Calgary oil money in, in, in the refinery of Edmonton. It was sort of like, you know, the, the two, but it was really, there was real competition of, of, of province. Uh, both had great teams. I mean, we had great teams in, in Calgary and Edmonton had maybe, you know, they had the better team. Uh, they had a little bit more depth. I mean, I look at our team and then I looked at Edmonton's team and, you know, Edmonton at the time maybe had a little deeper um, edge in, in defense than maybe what we did in Calgary, you know. Uh, we had some good players in Lanny and Kent Nielsen and some others there. Um, you know, yeah, they had Wayne. Wayne was in sort of his youthful years and Curry and Anderson um, and Messier. But we had some guys in behind that we could go toe-to-toe -to -to, uh, toe -to -toe with them pretty good. And we had some great games. And I can still recall, you know, the, 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 the battles that went on and, those will never be forgotten. Those that lineup, the Oilers lineup as a goaltender, must have put the fear of God into you, no? I, uh, not really. I mean, um, you know, I, I looked at it as a as a as a as, as a challenge, but at the same time, um, I knew their firepower, and you know, it was it was a, you know it was a sense that you know I had to be on top of my game as any goaltender had to be when you played against the uh, the Oilers. I mean, they were good; they were very good. And, uh, but, you know, there was many nights that, you know, I played well and beat them too. And, uh, you know, I think that's part of the thing of the rivalry. I mean, 
Uh, we could go toe to toe with them pretty much. And, uh, you know, and, and they had their some tough guys and we had some tough guys as well. And, you know, the, the both teams really respected each other. And, you know, uh, it just happened that maybe Edmonton just had a little bit more depth than we did in Calgary. But we were, certainly, we, were, we were probably certainly the second or third best team in the league at the time. I don't think there's any question about it. And and I wonder if you if you miss that style and era of hockey, Don. Um, I do. And I think it's it, what's sort of happened, Mike, that that I um, believe is that there's a lot more um, foreign players in the league today than maybe what there was back then. I think that the players during my era at the end of the season would stay in the towns they played in. They became a part of the fabric in those communities. Um, you know, we were all part of the the, the, the charity, um, all the, the, the philanthropy that was in, involved in the city. We were involved in some way or, or another. Um, the players today, for the most part, they're making so much money that they go home to their hometowns or, you know, the, the places where they have these rich, you know, places or vacation spots that they go to. So I think a lot of the cities have lost that flair, that dynamic of those players staying in residing in those communities you know it reminds me of the old adage that you play for the name or the symbol on the front of the jersey not the name on the back yeah yeah i there's not too many teams that i can you can look at now where you know i know in buffalo during our heyday we had anywhere between 14 to 16 players that stayed in the in in the city for for the summer and we became brothers i mean we did everything in the summer together and and in the winter together you know it, you know there was a party we were in the we were all involved in it, you know, it didn't matter where it was. And, and uh, you know, it was just, we just had a different lifestyle that these kids do today. I mean, I think in some ways the, the league is a little bit overpaid. Um, you know, I, I, I really believe, that. I think sports in, in general, I think the, the you know, it's the, the money's gotten way out of hand, but, you know, that's endorsement monies and things like that that are now affecting the games. But I think it's also affected some of the smaller markets as well. You know, that is an excellent observation around the connection to the community, the city where you played. I'd never heard, I haven't heard that expressed before. And I think you're absolutely onto something because you, you want to win for that city, right? Yeah. Like I look, I look now and I still get, you know, note from time to time from the buff. I, well, I get lots of stuff from the Buffalo alumni, but even the Calgary alumni, there's a real strong allegiance of that. Those, those eighties teams in Calgary there, you know, I look out there and, and there's Lanny and, and Jamie McCowan, and the list goes on, you know, Jim Poplinski, and the list goes on, on Jamie Hislop, they're still living there. Um, uh, it just, I think, you know, when, when you're successful in, in a city, there's a, there's a sense of pride that in, in, in you feel at home there. I, I think today with these players um, that don't stick around, they, you know, they all, as soon as the season's over, they're gone. Um, there's there's a sense of loss of of that and i think there's a loss of connection between the players and the city because of that um and you know yeah don't get me wrong there's still some, some players that do stick around but there's less and less and i think back when i played there was probably 80 percent, 85 percent of the guys were in town um where i think today it might be 15 you know very few did the time zone playing in the mountain time zone mess with you after coming out of the East? Oh yeah, very much so. Very much so. It was hard. It was, it was hard. It was hard playing in Calgary when I first got there, you know, uh, playing in that elevation, like it was playing in, in, in Denver was also tough. Um, 
But, you know, we didn't have any short road trips in Calgary. You know, Edmonton was three hours away. And so everything was a flight. Um, we're in Buffalo. We could we bust it to Cleveland. We used to bus it um, to uh, Toronto as well. Um, and we used to bust the odd time to Pittsburgh. Um, but, you know, everything in Calgary was flying. You talk about busing to Toronto, and that's where you finish up your NHL career. Was it like a dream come true for an Ontario kid to put on that jersey? Um, I'll be honest, probably not. I, I respected, the, you know, and I I respected the Leafs. Um, it was the team was in total transition. You know, Jerry had brought in all those kids, Wendell and Russ Cortnell, and um, you know, I think there was five rookie defensemen there. Um, you know, that when I was there, you know, Todd Gill and Gary Nyland and uh, Ally Afraidy, and the list goes on and on. You know, Bobby McGill. It it, it just it just goes on and on and on. I think it was five rookies there. And then we, you know, Borey was still there, but Borey was hurt a lot. He spent a lot of time away um, from the team um, with injury or rehab, whatever he was doing. But um, so we relied on some some older veterans, you know, the the the, uh, um, the Brad Maxwells that you know Brad just recently passed away, and and some others that you know uh, Chris Karsopoulos, and you know they were sort of the void that until the kids sort of got groomed, but you know. Uh, they still got the ice time. And, you know, I think, you know, we uh, back, looking back, I, I believe that my first year in Toronto, Danny Maloney, our head coach, did a phenomenal job. And how we ever made the playoffs is, 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 is no one's guess. But Danny did a great job. He um, I still remember we beat Chicago four straight and everybody looked at us and said, how did we do that? And then we took St. Louis seven games in the second series. And then the following year, Dan, you know, Danny's out. They didn't re-sign Danny, and I thought it was a huge mistake. Um, and then Danny went to Winnipeg, um, and it was it was sad to see because uh, I really believe Danny deserved the, that second year in, in in Toronto. I would love to have had him back as a coach. It made it change my career a little bit. And I really didn't see I didn't have a I didn't really see eye to eye with Jerry McNamara either. Uh, I just didn't like some of the things he did, um, and you know, it's probably probably affected my career as much. And, you know, I can't blame Jerry, but, you know, I cer certainly can blame myself. I, I just didn't like some of the things he did. How involved was Ballard? Uh, he was around, let's put it that way. Um, you know, I, I don't think Harold was involved in too much of the decision-making, but I, I'm sure behind the scenes, he certainly voiced his opinion. I can still recall a couple instances when uh, Harold was traveling with us, his health was uh, failing. Um, but you know, he was, he was certainly an interesting man. I, you know, didn't get to know him all that well, but, um, you know, you certainly respected him when, for, for who he was and, and in his presence. You know, I, I was thinking about you being in Toronto and of course, Maple Leaf Gardens, you mentioned the Montreal forum before Boston garden, the old Chicago arena, Madison square. I mean, again, not to compare eras, but some of the, the classic, the best buildings ever probably to play hockey in. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I played in the old Detroit Olympia, you right. know, the Ch Chicago Stadium, the Montreal Forum, and the old Boston Gardens. I mean, I saw all those old, you know, the Los Angeles Forum. I played in all those buildings, you know, that are no longer, many of them are no longer there. And uh, I don't think any of them are there anymore. And even then, Madison Square Gardens has been renovated uh, from, you know, from when I played. You know, the buildings are a little bit different. We used to play, you know, there used to be um, four or five buildings that had small life services, which was Bo uh, Buffalo and Boston. Uh, Chicago was small uh, ice surface, and there was others as well. 
But, um, you know, certainly when you went into places like the Montreal Forum, um, it was special. It was a special environment. Um, when you went in there in the morning, you went to your pre uh, your, your pregame skate in the morning just to listen uh, to Claude Varel uh, put the uh, Canadians through the paces. Scotty would be on the ice, but Claude Varel would be putting them through the paces in the morning and just to see the snap of the puck on their sticks and the way in which they did things. Um, it opened your eyes on what, how good of professionals and how good a team that was. And I can recall in Buffalo, I think the one year that Montreal had, had only lost, I think it was the eight games of the season, they lost eight games. Buffalo, I think, beat them three times, three or four times. Um, so we were... We could we could go toe to toe. I mean, uh, our team was blessed with 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 great talent, and and uh, you know we had our checking line of, of Luce, uh, Ramsey, and Gare, and they would go against Lafleur and, and Cornway and and Lemaire, and you know we had our scoring line of of the French Connection, and you know and then we had some good third liners and some decent fourth liners as well. And it, the two teams were pretty blessed. The Canadians maybe had a little edge in defensemen and in Savard, LaPointe, Robinson. But we had, you know, Sean Feld and Corab and, 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 and Foglin and, and Billy Height. And, you know, the, it, so we we would match up against them pretty well. We talked earlier about the pressure that comes with the position, obviously. And being a goaltender, Don, you can also be a target pretty easily. Were there any fan bases that got on you around the game? Well, you know, I, I had a couple death threat, threats in hotels. <laughs> two in particular in New York. Um, but I had graphite pipe throw throughout me, uh, nine volt batteries, uh, uh, cigarette lighters, you, you name it. I mean, beer bottles. In the old Detroit Olympia, you used to walk through the crowd from the dressing room to the ice. You used to walk through the crowd. You know I mean, they'd be standing like two feet away from you. Um, you know, it was, some of those buildings were tough. I mean, it was, uh, it was certainly a, an experience to go in and play in some of those buildings. I know that there was uh, a time that you were thinking just before the end of it all of maybe uh, making a comeback to the NHL, but it didn't happen. How tough was it for you to hang them up? Well, that that's a great story, and I got you got to admit, I got to tell you about this. So I finally got my settlement with the Leafs. And so I, you know, I was a free agent to do whatever I wanted to. And King Clancy had died in Toronto. And uh, anyways, I received a call from Scotty Bowman. And uh, Scotty, I believe, was in Chicago and he was going to fly in for uh, King Clancy's funeral. And so he said, can you pick me up at the airport? He said, I want to meet with you. So uh, it was odd. I picked Scotty up. We went down to uh, St. Michael's Cathedral where the, the, uh, the service was and uh, we were there about an hour before it all started and, and Scotty on our when we, we were just waiting in the car he said um, I, I, I want you to consider coming back to Buffalo and, and, and playing a little bit also um, working with the kids and other becoming a goaltending coach as well and geez I you know boy I was pretty excited I was you know 30 I think 34 at the time um, and I was pretty eager so he said he told me, come over and see me in two days. Or So I did. Uh, that night, the Sabres were playing um, Minnesota. Um, I met with Scotty for about 20 minutes. And we were just starting to finalize what my 
my role on how he wanted me to do. He said, you know, I want to get back, get in shape. I want to sort of uh, platoon you sort of between Buffalo and Rochester, play a few games, and then work with the kids in the organization. Because back then there was guys like Darren Poopa and some others, younger guys at the time. And I said, great. And so we were just starting to work through some of the details and Scotty's phone rang. And uh, it was uh, Dory Seymour Knox's secretary. And so he, he, she said to him, uh, Scotty, uh, Mr. Knox wants to see you right away. So Scotty, you know, hung up and he said, Don, can you go out and watch uh, Minnesota practice? And after they're done practicing, he'll come and get you and we'll finish our conversation. Well, uh, Minnesota came on the ice. I watched all their, you know, all their pregame skate, uh, morning skate, and no Scotty. Scotty never come back. So it was about, it's now about quarter to 12 and the black aces of Minnesota were just starting to leave the ice. So the main team had left and they, you know, they've already worked at two or three guys that they had as extras and they were now leaving the ice. So I decided to go down to the dressing room, the Sabre dressing room. And I saw Rip Simonic and I said, Rip, uh, who was the, the equipment manager? I said, Rip, have you seen Scotty? He said, you don't know. And I said, no, what? He said he was fired an hour ago. So, you know, I didn't know quite, quite what to do. So I, I, you know, went home, I drove back to Toronto and, and, uh, and, and then I called Jerry Meehan, who was the interim GM, um, who took over from Scotty on the interim basis. And, and, uh, I, I, I said, Jerry, I said, I was in talks with Scotty about coming back and playing a little bit and, and helping the kids. And he said, I can't do anything because I'm just the interim GM. And that was it. So it never went any further, but I was, I was that close. If Scotty would have been there probably through the rest of the day, I was probably going to be a Buffalo Sabre again. And I would have been, I, I would have been so happy. So later that summer, it never worked out, but later that summer we sold our home in Toronto. We, we built a new home in Buffalo and moved back to Buffalo. Well, I was going to say, you know, you would have been so happy. Buffalo would have been so happy. I think to yeah. see Don Edwards come back. Yeah. Well, I was still, you know, I, I felt I could still play. That was the crazy thing about it. I thought I got a raw, raw deal in Toronto with Jerry. I really did. I really thought I got a raw deal. That my 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 second year in, going into Toronto, I'd worked my ass off. It was probably in the best condition of my life. Uh, I mean, I was running seven miles um, six days a week, and I was I was running them in almost marathon speed. And then after I got done, I'd go home and do thirty or forty laps in my pool, have a light breakfast, and then I'd go down to the gardens and I'd work on the UBE machines, you know, on the upper body. And I was in tremendous shape. I don't think, I think that year. I went in, into camp and I had like 4% body fat. I mean, the, there was only one guy better than me. And that was Boria. Boria's body fat was 2.8. So like the two oldest guys on the team, we were in the best shape. I mean, Boria was just, a, you know, he was a physical specimen to begin with. But I really worked my ass up. And, you know, I, the, what I could do was, was incredible. And how I, I got there was that, you know, I was living in Mississauga um, on, on Fleet Street, which was just around the corner from Don Cherry. And every morning around eight o'clock, I'd go out and I'd run virtually seven miles. I'd run along out past Don's and, and out onto the service road. And I what I would do is I'd run as fast as I could from telephone post to telephone post. And then when I got to the second telephone post, I'd run at a normal run speed. And then when I got to the following um, telephone post again, I'd sprint. And I did that for seven miles. And my times went from like 43 minutes down at the end when I was running them in about 35, 34, 35. That's how fast I was doing because I would purposely carry a stopwatch and, and follow my times every day. And every day I had to get better. It was like the five minute hockey game for me. So uh, 
you know, I really thought I got a raw deal because John Brophy came in uh, that year as the coach after Danny had left and I was sort of moved and they sent me to New Market and I wasn't going to have that because I really believed I could still play in the National Hockey League. You know, it's funny when you mentioned it was like that five-minute segments in the hockey game. That's exactly what I thought when you talked about those telephone poles. And maybe that speaks, Don, to, you know, the orderliness you like to have in yeah. your life or in your mind. Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, I was I was dedicated that year specifically to get my body in the best shape I could ever do. It was almost like the year I went to play with Team Canada because, you know, before camp, I went to Florida for two weeks. I ran in the sand on Clearwater Beach. I'd go out and do five miles at and run this in the sand and then I get back and then I'd go swim in the pool. And then after I left Florida, I went back to Buffalo and then we flew to uh, Victoria, BC. We went out to Shimong and then I ran in the mountains at my aunt and uncle's place up there. And I run three or four miles in the mountains. That probably wasn't a wise decision at the time because of all the cougars out there, you know, the mountain lions and everything else are there. But anyways, I was in great shape. So when I went to camp with team can, this was really interesting. You know, we, we practice twice a day. We practice in the morning and then we go back to the hotel. We'd have a little lunch and then we'd practice like at 1.30 until 2. We would scrimmage, scrimmage at that point for like an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And it was a rule that at the end of that second practice, we had, I believe it's called Victoria Park there. We had to go down and either run five miles in the park. You know, we'd run out of the, the Montreal Forum and up around Victoria Park. I believe that's what it's called. And then back to the, the Forum. Or the guys had to do a half hour on the bike. Well, three quarters of us ran, or most of us ran. Um, I think there was very few guys. I think Dennis Potvin didn't run only because he had bad, a bad groin. Uh, but there, there were most of us. And so the, the early um, part was that Ray Bork and I ran all together all the time together. We were the lead pack. We were way out in front. And then within a few days, uh, uh, Wayne Gretzky joined us, and then Daryl Stiltler joined us, and then Bob Ganey. Ganey joined us. So the five of us, you know, we were like the lead pack and the other guys were well behind. <laughs> That's quite the elite running club you established there. Yeah, it was neat. It was really, I see Borky every so often here in Florida. He doesn't live far from me and I see him and, you know, we quite often will, we'll, when we see each other, we'll reminisce about our, our time running in Montreal. When you were talking about those conversations with Scotty Bowman and working with some of the kids and coming back to Buffalo, you, you did coach a bit. Did you ever consider pursuing it more aggressively? Well, I, you know, as you know, I coached with Los Angeles with Larry and, you know, I was an assistant coach there. And then I left, when Larry left, uh, I stayed two years with Andy Murray. And then I, I left there and then I went to Carolina and worked for Paul Maurice. Paul was great to work for. I have the utmost respect for Paul Maurice. He's a great coach, great coach as I do with Larry. Um, and then I left there and I, and I ran the team, the, the tier two team in Oakville. Um, and then after that, I went on to be the general manager in Saginaw. And that was, I would like to, you know, keep those thoughts to myself. It wasn't the best experience in my life, to be truthful with you. But because they had went through, I think at that point, I think it was seven coaches and five general managers before I got there in a very short period of time. And I just got caught in that wave. I remember uh, this is, this is, this is funny, Mike, but the year that uh, um, Pete was there, was the coach with Kitchener and uh, I Pete and I worked hard um, to work out a deal because he needed players in the Memorial Cup because Kitchener was hosting it. So Pete wanted a player by the name of Ryan McDonough that I had in Saginaw and I we worked hard. We almost the deal almost took a, a month to, to work out. And but the package I was getting back from the Rangers 
Um, I would have got players like Maverick Parks, and there was a defenseman that was from Rochester, New York. You might know this kid's name. It just skips my memory for a second. I was getting a left winger that went on. He was traded to, uh, ended up being traded to London that scored 40 goals the following year. And I had two first round picks with that. And uh, uh, I was pretty happy to get that deal done. I went back to Saginaw to try and sell that deal to the ownership and they wouldn't accept it. And I, I went, you know, they, we were in a complete rebuilding mode, but you know, I, I, I can recall another deal I had that was with Barry and it was a sizable deal for uh, another centerman we had. And I was getting three players back in that deal as well, plus a draft pick and they just wouldn't accept it. And so I was, uh, you know, it was, my hands were a little tight. I felt like at times I had handcuffs on and, um, uh, and so, you know, it, it, it's tough to work in that environment. And I, and, and, and I was the hockey guy. I was the guy that had all the experience. And when they don't let you um, use your imagination and use your mindset to, to, to better the team, then you're not in a good situation. Is it a good place to be now watching your grandson play goal and being around the game at that level? It is. You know, it's funny. I didn't skate for nine years when I left. Uh, Saginaw, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't skate for almost nine years. And then, you know, well, my granddaughter, you know, came along and I skated with her, took out her on the ice once. And then my grandson came along um, five years ago and he started skating. I got him skating uh, three years ago. We put him on the ice and, you know, I started carrying him around for a while. And then he started getting a little bit of balance and, you know, we encouraged him. And now, you know, the, the little bugger can fly now. He, 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 there's no stopping. He just loves the game. He just loves the game. He wants to be a goalie in the worst way. But as I've said, you know, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I told his mom and dad, you know, let him become a really good skater uh, before you put him in the net. It's a great story. And I love to hear about the enthusiasm that kids still have for this yeah. game that we love yeah. so much. You know, the nice thing too, you know, I look, I look back and, you know, you mentioned about the career, you know, my career in, 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 in Kitchener, I don't know many players, uh, goaltenders have went through there, have went on and had the junior career they have, uh, you know, two first team All-Stars. And then I was picked up by the Marlies for the Memorial Cup in 75. And we won the cup that year. And uh, and then going on to Buffalo and win the Vezina, you know, being an NHL All-Star all -star and playing with Team Canada. I don't know of any other goaltenders in Kitchener that have had that type of record, to be quite truthful with you. Um, I know there's been teams in Kitchener went on to win the Memorial Cup, but I don't know of any other goaltenders that have really went on and had a career in the National Hockey League with any performance or uh, stats that they could look back on and say, geez, that was a, a, a good, really good career. And I was really blessed to be able to do that. You know, uh, that's why your name comes up so often still around the rink to this day when yeah. we talk about yeah. us to ever play goal for the Kitchener Rangers. Don Edwards' yeah. name is always near the top of the yeah. list. If I was ever invited back, you know, in some special form, I, I'd, come, I'd definitely be there. I just got so many great memories there, Mike. I mean, those people working for guys, guys like Jerry Moser, at Kitchener Beverages, my first year, because <laughs> I was done school at the time. I was already finished grade 12. But I worked at Kitchener Beverages. And the second year, I worked for Gus Maui at a sports store on Union Street, and he was the head pro at Westmount Golf Club. So I got to know a lot of people there, you know, Ernie and Ricky Hauser, the Mosers, um, you know, and the list goes on and on of the people I got to know there. And, and even, you know, going back there today, I, I still go back for the odd golf tournament that I'm invited to. But, you know, I, I, I often run into people that I, you know, that I know there that, you know, I haven't seen for a lot of years. But, you know, they're 
I'm always eager to see them again. Well, when you're starting to list off names like Moser, Hauser, and Maui in this in this town, that, yeah. that's a that's a like the Waterloo yeah. County royalty over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was, you know, I was like I said, is it Kitchener was such a great town to me. I mean, you know, it was sad to leave and leave junior hockey, but at the same same time, I was happy to move on to a professional career too. But I was, you know, I left with I left with a feeling of of the, the of, of of comfort and happiness. And that I'd received support from some very great people. And, and, and that's why I think so highly of Kitchener-Waterloo. It's I'm, I'm so glad to hear it. And I can tell you, as I mentioned a moment ago, Kitchener-Waterloo thinks very highly of Don yeah, Edwards, too. There's I no question that. about that. Uh, I, I did want to touch on, because your name's been in the news uh, this past year uh, for a, a couple of reasons. One is the book that you're working on, and, and yeah. the other, the reason that you're working on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if a lot of people know this part of Don Edwards' story, but uh, in 1991, what I would describe as unspeakable tragedy came your way. Right. Yeah. My mother, my mother and father were murdered March 21st, 1991. It was a, um, I mean, a horrifying moment in our lives. I mean, um, can't tell you the devastation it caused uh, for all of our family. Um, you know, I, from it, I, I got post-traumatic stress disorder after it because, uh, I think it was a lot of issues that happened. I was my myself and my brother-in-laws were the first back in the home after we were allowed back in at, back in uh, in after the coroner and the police had left and they did all their investigation. Um, and see that and see that house destroyed. It was just so upsetting. Um, and then you know the two trials. Um, you know having to deal with a. And, 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 and deal with a situation of an auction where, you know, you see your family, families, um, the household really be auctioned off in like four to six hours and, you know, seeing cherished items that, you know, you, you were surrounded by in life, um, all of a sudden gone. Um, there was just, it was, it was very traumatic. Um, you know, it was funny, uh, earlier, earlier today, in fact, about 15 minutes before I, I, uh, buzzed into the zoom here, um, I was writing a, a victim impact statement because we have another hearing on December 8th. Now, the individual that killed my parents, George Harding Lovey, is out on day parole and in, uh, in, in, and he's in Sudbury. He still has to report to his, uh, his, um, the, his halfway house, uh, you know, um, a couple times a week, but he's, he's now requesting full parole on him. We're in the fight of our life right now, Mike, to try and keep him in. I mean, he, um, uh, prior to, to killing my parents, he, he had sexually assaulted and raped my sister, and he also uh, threatened through his sister to uh, kidnap her, which was my children and my uh, nephew and nieces. So um, there is a serious threat there. I mean, it's something that doesn't go away. Uh, we deal with it, and uh, you know now we're preparing um, to um, to uh, go, you know, to put our victim impact statements in for a, another hearing that will be coming up December eighth, which may, you know, he may get his his, his, his full parole, which. At that point, he's able to go anywhere in Canada and possibly move back uh, next door to my sisters or, or whatever. And that was one of the main reasons why I left Canada. As I know, as I know, convicted felons can't come to the U.S. But um, you know, I've taken some serious measures in my in my uh, regard as well. My wife and I now have our concealed weapons permit. That would have been something I would never have thought about getting. But you know, um, I've got a threat in my life, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to protect my family of it if it comes down to it. So these are all things that, you know, have, have, have impacted us. And, 
you know, um, you know, I can't even tell you, I think this is the 11th or 12th victim impact statement uh, I've written along with my wife and family members and friends. And uh, so we're preparing and, and we'll do our best to try and uh, keep him at least in, in a day parole and so he can't visit the regions. And, you know, it's funny, Kitchener-Waterloo is one of the areas that we have on our, uh, our, our with the um, um, Parole Board of Canada, that's one of the areas that he can't go to is uh, is Kitchener-Waterloo. And for good reason, we have family members that live there. And uh, and so we've all done our part, you know, they hauled them in Norfolk, Caledonia is another, the, the uh, Peterborough area is another where I, you know, we, my wife and I, uh, our son and his wife are, you know, he lived a great deal of part of his life and his wife is from that area. So we, um, we've, we've certainly been uh, very diligent trying to uh, put uh, areas of, that he can't go to. And, and if he gets full of parole, uh, those restrictions all go away. And, and we sure hope that doesn't happen. This is the part that I struggle with, and I admire your determination in this regard, Don, beyond comprehension, because you're talking 10, 11, 12 times that you're going back with victim impact statements, and yeah. it must it must sour you on the system, I'll use in air quotes here yeah. in Canada, yeah. that allows this to keep happening. Yeah. Well, if you walk back, in, I have a, a huge bonus room in the back of my home here, and it's where my all my um, memorabilia is, you know, that I've collected over the years for my 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 all-star jerseys, you know, the, the one from Washington, I actually have Ronald Reagan's signature on it. Um, there's actually two of those sweaters in the world. One sits in the Reagan library with Reagan one, and I have the other jersey, which is Edwards one. And I, when I was working with the Kings, I knew somebody on his detail, on a Secret Service detail, and he, he took the jersey to him and had him sign it. Um, but I have some things. I have my Team Canada jersey back there. Now, you know, I was very proud to play with Team Canada, but I got to be honest with you, my disdain for Canada and the Canadian justice system. I mean, I, I am so bitter. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's unreal. Um, the Canadian justice system has failed us. The Pro Board of Canada has failed us. Um, so many things, uh, you know, um, the liberal attitude there is, 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 is over the top. Um, I often talk to friends back there. In fact, I played golf with a guy on Saturday down here that is, is a well-known um, person in, in Ontario. And uh, he even said to me, it's crazy there now. It's, you know, things, I thought things were maybe bad in the States right now with, with some of the things that have gone on with our government here. But um, it's it's even crazier from what I understand in Canada. Has writing the book been therapeutic to you in any way? It has. I, I had it, I'll be honest with you. It's funny. I go at it from, you know, I have to, I go at it from period, some period, it's sort of like five minute segments again. I have to take my pauses though because you know, my post-traumatic stress disorder kicks in and then I have to stop writing. Now I went through a really tough patch about three months ago where I was writing uh, about the trial. Um, and the trial was really you know, difficult because it, it, there, you know, there was so much um, information that was, uh, you know, presented in, in, in just the testimony was overwhelming and listening to the 911 call and you know where you can hear my 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 parents voices and and, and things like that and and, and um, you can hear the attack in the house and um it, 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 it's just gory and there's times that I I have to collect myself and step away to say you know I've got I've got to change what I'm doing right now and it was interesting Writing the victim impact statement today was 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 easy, 
Uh, but at the same time, trying to make sure I've got my full thoughts on paper um, is, 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 is difficult. The other thing that's disappointing about this one, and this is important, Mike, and we're really, I'm, I'm pissed that the Pro Board of Canada, um, all of the other um, uh, pro sessions have all been uh, with us present, all of the family. We, you know, you sit there in front of the pro board, uh, George Harding Lovey sits, you know, in front of the, 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 the pro board, and then we sit virtually about three feet behind him. There's no protection between us. He sits right in front of, there's no wall, there's nothing. And you can virtually, I can reach out and, and touch him if I, if I wanted to, you know, um, and, but this time we're all of the others, uh, starting way back in, in, in 2011, I guess was, or even before that, uh, we were, we were present for them all. Um, now this one, they want to do a zoom call where it's like you and I, and so the pro board and love you will sit in a room. And my suspicions are, is that they're doing it because they, my belief is that they're going to give them full parole. They don't want the family there. Um, they don't want to see us. Um, our, they don't want to witness our emotions, uh, our disdain for them. Uh, and uh, that's my suspicions. And, and, and the virtual, the opening part of my victim impact statement um, uh, certainly goes into depth. The first paragraph goes into depth about my, my feeling of, of disrespect the Parole Board of Canada has given us in this parole hearing. I'm going to try and get as many media people as I can involved in that in, on that Zoom call because the more awareness we have, the more heat we put on the parole board. Um, but it's it's not easy, you know, uh, uh, to get people's attention about the need that we are asking and the time that we're asking for their support. Um, it's it's emotional. It can be. It is a very stressful as you can be. You may be well aware. But our, our, our families went through hell. I mean, absolutely th went through hell. And and the reality is, if I may, still goes through hell. Yeah. This impact yeah. is still real 30 plus years later. Yeah, yeah. That, that threat is real to us. If somebody says, you know, his risk management counselor may say that he is low to moderate risk. Low to moderate risk doesn't, doesn't gel with us. I mean, low to moderate risk is a risk. I don't care how you, 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 um, you think of it. And you know the 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 onus of of of, of responsibility. Should anything ever happen, that onus of responsibility will fall right on top of the Canadian government, the the Canadian justice system, the, the Parole Board of Canada, and Corrections Canada. So um, I mean, it, it's happened in the past. And there's no nothing to say that it won't happen in the future. But you know, it's well documented that you know these offenders have come out and reoffended, and uh, and 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 the second time they reoffend is even worse than the first because they're you know they're out you know they're out to get you i will definitely be keeping my eyes and ears on december the 8th you said right yes it is yeah okay mm -hmm. yeah um yeah. can't imagine don but thank you for sharing the story and and the generosity you've had with your time <laughs> here today i mean yeah. listen talking hockey is a lot of fun i hope it's a nice respite yeah. for you too but this is an important yeah. part of the story and i'm grateful to you for sharing it thank you yeah, yeah. thank you mike thank you for sharing it and, and, and you know uh, and listening to it because it lots of people it's interesting um many people don't understand the magnitude of how it affected our lives um but i'd be virtually when i you know got my post-traumatic stressor 
I virtually became a recluse for about three and a half years. And people wondered after the, after the, the trials where Don Edwards go, I was, I was dealing with a serious issue in my life and it wasn't until 1995 when, you know, I finally had written my goaltending book, my goaltending critiquing manual and sent it off to a couple of NHL teams. And, and uh, my good friend, uh, Larry Robinson, uh, you know, he took the job there and needed a goaltending coach and happened to see it and reached out to me. And that was my, my opportunity to jump back in the league. But, you know, I, I went through some about four, four and a half years, a pretty rough patch in my life where, you know, trying to sort things through and just trying to keep my own salvation. I mean, everything from suicide, you, you name it, it, it goes through your mind. And yet here we are having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, a, yeah. that's a testament to you, sir. And if I may, yeah. uh, when that night happens in Kitchener, we're going to make sure I'd like to shake your hand in person. Okay. We'll get you back here. We'll have some, <laughs> some ceremony for yeah. something. Okay. No, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's interesting in the fact that, you know, it, it's interesting the fact that, I just, I, I, I feel so blessed. And I do fall in my phone there, but I feel so blessed that, you know, to have been able to spend time in Kitchener and meet, met so many great people. It's a great hockey community. Um, and the, the, I have the utmost respect for the organization and the community itself. I think we feel similarly. And uh, I'll thank you very much again for making time to do this with me today, Don. Thanks, Mike. All the best to you and good health to you. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.